So, um, go back to Leviticus 23. Uh, we are together today, obviously. We're together again next week. And if you notice your schedule, there's two weeks I'll be gone, uh, leading a group studying Lutheran, Luther, Lutheranism, Protestantism um, in Germany and, enjoy the, and enjoying the country of Germany. So uh, after next week, we'll, we'll have a little break. So next week, we finish up the Leviticus text. Uh, let me just remind you where we're at with the Leviticus text, and then I'll call your attention to that um, cheat sheet that I gave you as you came in. Uh, if I missed you somehow, they're back on the table. So um, um, I'm looking to see who's back there. Nancy is on her way back there. Would you bring some to some other folks that missed it? But it's, I don't even know what color that is, but it's this little half sheet that one of the administrative assistants put on bright, colorful paper so you'll always be able to find it. You can stick it in your Bible. Uh, let me um, remind you of where we're at in Leviticus, and some of you are here for the first time. Uh, we're, we're studying Jesus and the Jewish festivals. We're, um, and most of, most, not all, but most of what we see in the New Testament where Jesus' ministry is obviously connected with the Jewish festivals is in the Gospel of John. And we'll be looking at some of those texts, and you'll see all of that uh, on, on the outline. And um, as a matter of fact, I've got some of the old outlines up here. Do any of you need one of those? Um, thank you, Gary. You knew you were going to be put to work today. And there's the old outline. Just keep it handy um, to make sure you don't show up on October the 20th. Uh, we're studying Jesus and the Jewish festivals. Uh, that will help us get a better understanding of the Jewish roots of our faith, That will get, which is three-quarters of the Bible. Uh, the Bible, of course, is written by all Jewish authors. The whole New Testament is written by all Jewish authors, except probably Luke, who did some of the writing of the New Testament. So we're, we're learning how the Jewish festivals show us something about Judaism, but more important, and why, why they were important to um, Jesus, he was a practicing Jew, and why they're very important to the author of the Gospel of John. Um, this will give us a better understanding of our Jewish roots. Uh, this will help us from being anti-Semitic, as Christians have had a tendency of becoming over the years, you know, saying horrible things like, you know, our God is a God of grace and love. Your God, Jew, is a, is a God of uh, wrath and judgment, which is not only horrible and bad theology, bad biblical theology, that's what led to the Holocaust. So it's not just poor theology. When you do anti-Semitic whatever, you may pave a path for the Holocaust. That's why, because of the Holocaust, we do much better now. Uh, a lot of Christians are fine. They just get a copy of the New Testament, and um, it's smaller, easier to carry around, and they ignore the Old Testament, which, remember, the only Bible the early Christians had was what we call the Old Testament. It was only after Paul wrote his stuff and John wrote his stuff, well after um, the, the Christian movement was established that then was put together what we call the New Testament. They did all their preaching of Jesus from the Old Testament. Um, the, the festivals and the 23rd chapter of Leviticus uh, is just one of those places in the uh, Hebrew Bible where all the seven festivals are introduced at one place. Uh, so that's why we're spending three weeks looking at the seven festivals. Um, all of these seven festivals appear in the New Testament. Um, and what I want to show you with that little cheat sheet 
is look as a is a view of the seven festivals that is specifically a Christian view of the seven festival festivals. So uh, you know, if you have a practicing Jew, you hand them this, they may think you've lost your mind. But this is a Christian view of those festivals and the view that we're talking about here, particularly when we're talking about Leviticus 23, is a view that has led to a lot of Jews converting to Christ. Uh, and of course, when a Jew converts to Christ, they don't change religions. When a Jew converts to Christ, they will tell you uh, they have fulfilled their Judaism. They're a fulfilled Jew. Uh, they're, not, they're no longer waiting for Messiah. They, they will believe Jesus is that Messiah. Um, uh, Jews that um, are outside of Christ still are waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, and what they would say to you was Jesus could not have been a Messiah because he did not do all of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. And that's when, as a Christian, you look at him and say, well, he's doing it in two trips. <laughs> and that's what the Jew would do to you when you say that. But that's what we believe. Jesus, yeah, some of the Messianic kingdom did not occur with the first coming of Jesus. But we believe he's doing it in two trips. And we believe that their festivals, well, the whole, all the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, but specifically those, their festivals, their seven major holidays, holy days, uh, point to the fact that Messiah will do it in two trips. So look at a cheat sheet for just a moment. Here are the seven festivals that we're looking at in Leviticus 23 because they're just presented in one place in Leviticus 23. Text about them occur throughout the Bible, including the New Testament. So I've mentioned to you several times there are seven festivals, biblical festivals, that, are, that come out of the Old Testament. There are four spring festivals, three fall festivals. And again, you know, there's seven festivals. That should tell you something. You know something, I'm sure, about the biblical number seven um, as perfection or completion. So there's seven festivals. We believe looking at these festivals and looking at the life of Christ, that he fulfilled the spring festivals in his first coming. The, the fall festivals uh, he will fulfill in his second coming. So let me run through this list real fast so you know what I'm saying. In the left-hand column are the festivals. Right-hand column is just how we think Messiah. By the, by the way, the word Messiah, Mashiach, that's just the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. Um, Christ, when the, when the Greek speakers started translating everything, they took Hebrew and put it into Greek. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament was, was produced in Greek 250 years before Jesus. So that's why even those early Jewish followers of Jesus were already using Greek. Uh, it was a worldwide language. But um, so Christ, Mashiach, or Messiah, same thing, means the anointed one. Um, so you see in the left-hand column the festivals, the right-hand column, uh, the Messiah or the Christ. So let me run through this real fast, and this will kind of be almost a background for the rest of the year. Uh, notice, and these festivals are in order from spring through fall. Uh, Passover starts um, um, in the spring. Again, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, so that's why the dates sort of move. But usually Passover, like our Easter, always, because it's tied to Easter, or Easter's tied to Passover, uh, Passover always occurs, it occurs during the Jewish month of Aviv, but it, it occurs in our months somewhere around March and April. 
So Passover, and the Hebrew word for Passover is Pesach. Passover, obviously most Christians know this, points to the sacrificing of the Messiah as the Lamb of God. We usually kind of remember that uh, during Holy Week on Friday. We remember that uh, a lot of times we, we see the connections with the Lord's Supper. So that's the first festival, points to the sacrifice of Messiah. The second festival, we talked about these three top three festivals last week coming from the book of Leviticus. Uh, these first three occur over a weekend. So Passover, depending on when it falls, like this year, let's say it's on Friday. And we believe it was, we pretty much know it was, when Jesus crucified, it fell on a Friday. Then after Passover, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast for the Jewish community. We talk about the, and we'll have more time throughout the year to talk more about each of these festivals. I introduced the first three to you last week. The Feast of Unleavened Bread um, starts on the day after Passover, but last seven days. But the day after Passover is the beginning of that feast. Uh, you see the Hebrew there for that hog, hamatzot. Hog means festival or uh, almost pilgrimage. Uh, you see matzah almost in that word. That's unleavened bread. We talked about that. Uh, that's remember the, when you have that festival where you use the unleavened bread, your seder meal. Um, you you hide away part of that that matzah in a nap napkin. There's a Hebrew word for that. I can't remember. Um, so I just proved it to you, Sue. So I can't remember the name of that Hebrew napkin. The, the Hebrew name's that napkin. But at the Seder meal, you hide away part of the uh, matzah uh, to bring it out later. So we Christians see, okay, burial of Jesus. Um, Passover is obvious, obviously a connection. Unleavened bread, you may have to work with a little bit. Feast of first fruit, that would be the Sunday. Feast of first fruit is that festival in Judaism where um, they, they celebrate... Uh, the beginning of a new harvest. Uh, it's a lunar calendar based on agricultural year. Uh, and the Feast of First Fruits celebrates the um, beginning of the harvest. So, and what the Feast of First Fruits does, and why, why Paul refers to the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection, is Christ was the first of the harvest that guarantees the rest of the harvest. Everyone in Christ will be resurrected one day. But uh, he's raised on first fruits. So when Paul says, as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first, is the first fruits of resurrection, he is a Jew, and the Jews he was talking to, though he was talking to a lot of Gentiles in Corinth, they knew exactly what he meant. The festival of first fruits celebrates God's guarantee that the rest of the festival is going to come. Uh, then we're going, and, and Bikarim is the Hebrew word for that, with resurrection of Christ. We're going to start back in Leviticus in a moment with Pentecost, which is the last of the spring festivals. So we'll talk about what that means. But most Christians know that because we share the same name of that festival with the Jewish community, if, we, if we're not speaking Hebrew, uh, because it was Pentecost because it happened on the 50th day. For them, it happened on the 50th day according to rabbinic tradition, on the 50th day after the giving of the law at Sinai. So that's why they're gathered, they're celebrating other things. That's why they're in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell on that early Christian community and we received a new law written on our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that was promised in Jeremiah as part of the new covenant. So Pentecost, we're going, we're going, we're going to do these uh, today when Leviticus, we're going to do Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. But what I want you to also notice um, between the spring festivals that ends with Pentecost and the beginning of the fall festival that begins with the Feast of Trumpets, we see that, that long, hot summer 
as the church age. While the harvest is coming in, and, I'm, and I think it's even, a lot of us, think it's even in the book of Leviticus, I'll show you a second, where it fits the church age. We're not just making this up. But it fits in the church age, of course, is the age in which we're living, the period between first and second comings of Christ. And then you get the fall festivals, fall of Feast of Trumpets, uh, which I'll be talking about in just a moment, Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. Uh, that's the beginning of the new year. For, for the Jewish community, Feast of Trumpets. And you'll, we'll talk about how that points to the gathering, the gathering to the, us gathering to Messiah at his second coming. Then, uh, and, it, and it begins the days of all, which are the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, so you've, after you, we'll talk about Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, the Day of Atonement we'll talk about next week along with Fest of, Feast of Tabernacles. But Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is, of course, when... Um, is the oldest day of the year for the Jewish community. Uh, which, by the way, you ever heard of the Yom Kippur War? Wonder why they attacked on Yom Kippur. Like, it's obvious why they attacked Israel on Yom Kippur. Uh, oldest day of the year. They were busy doing other things. Uh, but by 1973, Israel had already realized they had to keep some guards on duty even on Sabbath, even on Yom Kippur. But you remember that Yom Kippur War from 1973 when several of Israel's neighbors attacked her. But anyway, we'll, we'll do Dev Atomic Yom Kippur, which we see the second coming, uh, the, the final judgment, the second coming tied up with Dev Atomic Yom Kippur. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which we just finished last week, the, in the Jewish community just finished last week. Uh, that's, that's the consummation of these seven biblical festivals for the Jewish community. And uh, we'll see how that reminds us of, of the eternal or the messianic reign, millennial or otherwise. So you see how the order of the festivals, we think, shows us beautifully sacrifice Messiah, burial of Messiah, resurrection of Messiah, uh, giving of the Holy Spirit, then church age that goes on for a long period of time, then gathering to Messiah, the word there is rapture. The word rapture doesn't occur in the Bible. It occurs in the Latin version of, of the Greek. But rapture just means gather, being gathered to Christ. And we all agree there will be a rapture. There will be a gathering to Christ. Uh, where there's disagreement in the body of Christ is, is the timing and the dating of the um, rapture. But that goes back to a lot of our study on the book of Revelation. But anyway, the, we all agree at some point we'll be gathered to Christ. There's a judgment, then second coming of Christ and the completion of the reign of, of Christ, uh, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. So, um, you know, so I'm laying my cards on the table. Uh, that's, that's one of the, there's lots of reasons why these festivals are important, but that's one of the most obvious reasons um, we think these festivals are important. Um, the first reason is they're in the Bible, and we need to know Old Testament like we do New Testament. We didn't get rid of the Old Testament when, when we established the church. But uh, So there's several reasons why this is important. So with that, you have Leviticus 23 in front of you. Notice that uh, chapter 23 is a great summary statement. Intro. Then um, before it even gets into the festivals, it talks about Sabbath, or Shabbat. We, we talked about that last week as being the, the, the holy day that occurs weekly to the Jewish community. And then after it talks about Sabbath in, verses, in verse 3 of chapter 23, then in verse 4, it starts talking about Passover, Pesach. 
Then in verse 9, it starts talking about Feast of First Fruits. Um, and we looked at that last week. So we finished last week at verse 14, right? So uh, today I want to look at, third, at uh, 15 through 25, um, which, which basically is the Feast of uh, Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. Uh, the Feast of Weeks. The word Shavuot, which is the Hebrew word, just means weeks. Because it's seven weeks, seven weeks between, um, for us, Eastern Pentecost. For them, the giving of the law in Pentecost. So you add a seven on there. It's, it's, it's the 50th day. So uh, Feast of, of Weeks or Feast of Pentecost, that's the Greek version. Shavuot is Hebrew, Pentecost Greek. And... Um, uh, so we, most of us know by its Greek title, Pentecost, and what happened in the Christian community on that day when the Jews were celebrating. So we'll look at the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Trumpets today. So um, again, the Feast of Weeks ends the spring cycle, and the Feast of Trumpets begins uh, the fall cycle and the days of all, the ten holy days uh, of the Jewish community. So if you're thoroughly confused, give me to May the 18th. And uh, we'll, we'll sort this out. So look at verse 15. As the, I'm so grateful the author of Leviticus here is, is giving us a summary of all these holidays because they, they, are, they occur throughout the rest of the Bible. There are references to them in many different places. So here's the Feast of Weeks. And remember, Feast of Weeks equals Shavuot, which means weeks, which equals Pentecost. Um, seven weeks, you end up on the 50th day. So that's Pentecost. Pentecost means 50th day. So, look at the text. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, um, which would be Easter for us, by the way. That's why, that's, why, that's why two of our holy days that move are Easter and Pentecost, because Pentecost is tied to Easter. Easter is tied to Passover in the Jewish community. Anyway, so uh, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Um, that's the last festival. You shall count 50 days, Pentecosta, 50 days. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. New grain. God's doing something new. Um, for the Hebrew community, that might symbolize the giving of Torah, the law on Mount Sinai. For us, it's Pentecost and the new thing that began on the day of Pentecost. But God's obviously doing something new. And we're going to get some hints, particularly from a Christian perspective, as to what those new things are that God is doing. Um, so you, you shall then present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring your dwelling place, you shall bring, you shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves, not one, not three, but two, two loaves. You're going to see these loaves are not unleavened. These loaves are two leavened loaves. Uh, remember what we talked about leaven meaning, and this occurs frequently in the New Testament. Leaven is a symbol for, um, for sin, for sin uh, and evil. You know, Jesus and Paul, they all talk about the leaven of the Pharisees. So you know that leaven is a symbol of, of sort of bad. Well, here's two loaves being brought, made with leaven. So we look at two loaves being brought on 
Pentecost, and I can do that because that's, that's their name too, Shavuot. Uh, we look at two loaves made with leaven being brought and offered at the temple. So wonder what Christians have done with that for the last 2,000 years. Again, two loaves. Um, you know, as soon as Jesus did what Jesus did, the, a new work began. Uh, Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians. A new work began. The two men will become one new man. And Paul makes that clear what that means. The two men, Jew and Gentile, are being made into one new man. Um, that's been happening more in our lifetime than ever in Christian history. Uh, more Jews are coming to Christ. More Jews are coming to Judaism. And as a result of more Jews coming to Judaism, uh, more Jews are coming to Christ. I remember I was at the Western Wall one time, uh, and this Orthodox Jew walked up to me and just said, do you realize all of these are hundreds? I was on the men's side of the wall. There were hundreds of men uh, there at the Western Wall praying. And he said, do you realize there are Jews from all over the world at that wall who have returned to Israel? who had been regathered to Israel. Um, it was only in the year 2015, our lifetime, it was only in the year 2015 that we could say for the first time since 586 B.C., we could say for the first time there are now more Jews in Israel than around the world. So something new has been happening, um, I would contend, since 1948, or actually probably since the 1880s when they started looking at uh, going back to Israel, which we thought was a fantasy in 1880. And of course, 1948, it becomes a Jewish nation. But anyway, so when we see these two loaves being offered, we see them symbolizing, because this feels like Pentecost does, this feels like what happens after Jesus finishes the work, uh, two loaves, male, uh, Gentile and, and Jew, being brought together. And again, if you don't believe that there's sin and evil in this new thing that God's doing, your church is better than what I'm pastoring. I mean, we know in the new age, Jesus said that, let the harvest grow. Don't worry about separating the good from the evil. Let, let him do it at the end. So, you know, the, the, this new thing God's doing, the, the church, the new man, one man, Jew, Gentile, come together. Yeah, we're a bunch of sinful people. There's 11 in our lives. You know, if you know of a church or a community of Christians uh, that doesn't have any leaven, I want to go check them out. Um, we've got leaven. So here's these two loaves being presented that have leaven. Um, we Christians, since the early church fathers, I'm not making this up. It may be wrong, but I'm not making it up. Uh, I don't have original thoughts. But since the early church fathers, we have looked at this text and said this somehow symbolizes, again, Pentecost. This somehow symbolizes how the Spirit is bringing everybody together, Jew and Gentile, uh, in this new thing, this new movement. So um, it's the way we've read it for a couple thousand years. So there's, there's these two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven. I mean, there it is. I mean, it wasn't even left, you know, it happenstance for, you, for them to figure out would it have leaven or not. It shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. 
and you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd and two rams. A lot of this stuff really doesn't make, it's not very important now because there's no temple. There's no animal sacrifices uh, being offered. But you see what was, what was commanded when the temple was standing. Uh, first it was the tabernacle and then the temple was built and then the second temple was built. So you see these, um, these um, rules for the offerings that were made on this day, but of course they don't, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, so seven lambs a year old without blemish, one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be, by the way, they've already created... I'm told, I haven't seen it, so it may be completely wrong, but I'm told they have, uh, they have already, um, I'm not sure what the word is. I don't do science well either. They have created the new, a new red heifer. That is, that bull that's presented. Because there are Jews in the Holy Land convinced that they will be a rebuilt temple in the Holy Land in Jerusalem at some point. Um, and so they, they're already working on some of the furnishings of the temple. They're already working on uh, the, the right red heifer, the bull, the right one to, to produce. Uh, they're doing all this stuff. I, I do science and agriculture about like I do sports, but they tell me that's what's happening there. And I've talked to people there. Uh, I remember watching a video one time of, of, of talking to some of the uh, very, very Orthodox Jews who are looking forward to the... Um, looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of animal sacrifice, the reinstitution of the, just the sacrifices that you find in the Bible. And I was watching that. Um, it was a news broadcast, and I, and I was watching uh, the, the news person interviewing one of the, one of the conservative Jews there. And um, the, the news broadcast said, uh, what are you going to do about um, Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, those Jewish monuments uh, that, that right now sit atop the Temple Mount. They sit where the temple sat. Uh, I, I will never forget what that person said next. He said, we will tear them down and mail them piece by piece back to Mecca. Not a good idea. I hope they can figure this one out. Um, you remember the, the four years of intense conflict between Palestinian Jews from 2001 to 2005. That's the only time we ever slowed down going back to the Holy Land. But there was, that was the second intifada. That was the second Palestinian uprising. And it was pretty bad between Israelis and Palestinians. It all was ignited over the rumor, rumor, that the prime minister of Israel was going to go to the Temple Mount and, and work on putting the Temple Mount up top. Western Wall, of course, is right here. The, the wall of the Temple Mount that remains from Jesus' day. Atop the Temple Mount, there's no temple. Romans took care of that in 70 AD. But that's where the, that's where the Dome of the Rock is, which is not a mosque. And that's where Al-Aqsa Mosque is. And anyway, in 2000, when, when it all, literally all hell broke loose in, in, in Israel, is because the Prime Minister, I think it was Ariel Sharon. Again, it, I'm blaming my allergy medicine. I can't remember which prime minister it was, probably Ariel Sharon. But he, it was rumored he was going to the Temple Mount, and it was rumored he was going to take, because right now Israel lets the Muslim, Muslims control that area on top, which is why when I take groups there, I've only once been talked into going up there, because I've got multiple reasons not to want to go up there. Uh, one, of course, my Israeli Jew can't go with me. Well, he did that time. It was a really, everybody was really singing Kumbaya together nicely at that point. So, you know, we, 
I, I took my Jewish guide. We, we made a reservation. We went up atop the Temple Mount. We all had to hide any, any um, emblems of Christianity, which is one of, one of the reasons why I just really don't want to go up there. But, um, uh, but the, Jewish, the Israeli authorities do allow the Muslims to control that up there. That's how they work out the peace there. You know, um, Israelis are controlling down, down beneath where the Western Wall is, but up top where Al-Aqsa Mosque is and um, where uh, Dome of the Rock is, uh, that's being controlled by Muslims. By the way, because we Christians fight so much, our different groups fight so much, there's no Protestants over there hardly, but Armenian, Coptic, um, Syrian, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, so many of those old types of Christians, they, 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 they fight so much over space in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Guess who, owns, guess who holds the key to that that unlocks it every day? It has been this way for over 100 years. A Muslim family holds the key to that. So um, it, not, they don't need to get to control it, but they do hold the key to it. And they're the ones that let us unruly Christians in every morning to the Church Holy Sepulchre. Because some of those Christian groups, they are ter- I know you can't imagine Christian people in the church ever being territorial. <laughs> but they get really territorial over the Church, uh, the, church the Holy Sepulchre there in Jerusalem, the, the oldest, holiest site in Christendom for us. Uh, there's a church of Holy Sepulchre, by the way. Almost all, even secular historians will say, that is built over the spot where Jesus was crucified and built over um, where he was resurrected. Because we know there's a, there's a quarry underneath. Um, there's lots of reasons we know that. But, um, you know, it feels old and dark and ostentatious. And you have these cantankerous Christians protecting their pieces of it. Uh, but it is built over the right side. But a Muslim gets to unlock that every morning. Because we, you know, they just take the key away from us Christians. If we can behave while we're in there and not fight over our piece of it, um, they just won't open it one day, one morning. But anyway, you see all this stuff here about the offerings. Well, there's no temple. So that doesn't really apply a lot. Because of Jesus, by the way, he was the final, last sacrifice. Uh, there are a lot of Jews, by the way, who, even those who, and Christians, who see that a final temple will be built one day, animal sacrifice will not be reinstituted. So there's a lot of Jews and Christians who kind of like the idea of a new temple. Uh, if you were to go to my study, which is in the parsonage, I've got a... Um, huge print. cost me a whole lot more to frame uh, than to buy. I've got a huge print of the third temple up there, which, of course, is yet to be built. But a lot of us who, who think the Bible says there'll be a third temple and would like for a third temple to be built, um, would not, a whole bunch of us are not, it's not that we're members of PETA or anything, but we don't want to reinstitute animal sacrifice. Uh, we got somehow have to, we have to bring about the third temple and still see Jesus as the final ultimate sacrifice. Um, so, you know, to reinstitute animal sacrifice now is backwards for Christians, but a lot of Jews for other reasons um, don't, don't, don't want to institute that. So there's several reasons why, but you see the instructions here. Let me get through this fast. Um, you, you see this whole list about what's offered, what's offered, what's offered. Um, look down to verse 21. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation, that just means gathering, you shall not do, and we've already seen this, we saw it before, you shall not do any ordinary work. Remember on Sabbath, at the beginning of the 23, you're told to do no work. 
But for these festivals, because they last sometimes a week, you're told to do no ordinary work. And I like that translation. Some translations say, do no laborious work. Um, I don't think it's just saying, and they both are right, um, but I think I like ordinary work better because most rabbis say what's being taught here, Sabbath, no work. But the rest of these holidays, you can work, but don't do your vocation. Don't do your daytime job. Take the week off, which is, that's what happens. But it's clear in Leviticus, other than the Sabbath, do no work. The rest of these festivals say do no ordinary or laborious work. And then it says it is a statute forever. And all your and it does say forever. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. So there's the Feast of Weeks, which translated in Hebrew Shavuot, which translated um, 50th week, 50th day is Pentecost. Uh, that always occurs at the end of the spring festivals. For us this year, Pentecost is June 2nd, I think. I don't have a calendar in front of me, but uh, I think it's June 2nd this year. But it's usually around end of, end of May, beginning of June. Um, then what's really interesting here, there's like a paragraph inserted really before it starts talking about the Feast of Trumpets. There's a paragraph that's inserted. Um, I guess it applies specifically to the Festival of Weeks, but it occurs throughout the Hebrew Bible, and it's a standard, ongoing commandment that was given to the Hebrew people. I want you to look at it. Verse 22, chapter 23. And when you reap the harvest, because we are in these agricultural festivals and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're celebrating the first fruit. And then at this, by the way, here you're celebrating, uh, the, um, the, the wheat, the barley festival. And then you got wheat, fe or the barley festival's first fruits. And then, um, you're celebrating, um, uh, barley. Wheat, no, backwards. Barley first, because it comes quick, I'm told. I've not grown a lot of it myself. But barley comes in quickly. Wheat comes in later. Uh, so anyway, maybe because you're doing all this harvesting, here in verse 23 it says, But when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. If Gentiles know this, they probably know it from the book of Ruth, right? You know the story of the book of Ruth? That's what Ruth is doing. She's gleaning the edges of Boaz's field. Because, you know, she uh, and her sisters have lost their husbands, you know, the mothers uh, without son now. So they left Moab, went back to uh, uh, Bethlehem area, uh, and they're poor. That's what happens to you when you become a widow or uh, no child, adult child support you in, in biblical times. So um, she goes to glean the leftovers from Boaz, a rich man. Boaz, I'll never forget, I was in Palestinian Israeli life is so complicated, interesting, funny at times. Um, when you figure out a solution, let some of us know. But I remember one time I was in Bethlehem uh, doing Bethlehem. Bethlehem belongs to the um, to the Palestinians, so I have to get. I do have to get rid of my Jewish guide, and I get a Palestinian guide for for either Jericho or um, Bethlehem. So I had a good Palestinian. He was wonderful. He was great. I bet you when he showed us the there's there's a field between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you know where obviously 
That's the field over which shepherds kept watch over their flocks by night. That's the field that if you lived in Bethlehem, you'd be growing a harvest like Boaz was. Today, you go out and have weddings on that field because of this connection to uh, Boaz. But anyway, there's only five, six miles between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. So we were on the Bethlehem side looking at Jerusalem. We'd already been on the uh, Jerusalem side looking at that field. But now we're in the Bethlehem, we're in Bethlehem side with the Palestinian guide looking at that field. I bet that that Palestinian guy 30 times referred to Boaz as that Jew man. <sighs> yeah, there's a lot of strange emotions between the Palestinians and the Israelis. But anyway, you know the story about this gleaning bit out of, um, out of the book of Ruth, if nothing else. But you see this passion for, for taking care of the poor. And this is written throughout the Old Testament. This is written throughout the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Um, and it's just kind of stuck in here because we're dealing with harvest festivals. It's stuck in here. And then you see just a few words about the Feast of Trumpets. And this is where we'll stop. Uh, Feast of Trumpets. Now, notice between Feast of Weeks, we have the long, hot summer church age, the time of work, um, the time of Anyway, you don't. You got this period that goes on. Uh, so when you get to Feast of Trumpets, you're at the beginning of the of the September. You begin the fall harvest, fall, and you also begin the fall festivals. So that's why Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths, or Tabernacle or Sukkot. So here's here's the beginning of the fall festivals. Again, the first four we Christians think were fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, up through Pentecost when Jesus gives us his spirit back. These last three festivals, we think, will be fulfilled in the second coming. And they point beautifully to stuff that we believe about the second coming, such as this. Verse 23, uh, this Feast of Trumpets, is called, um, it's called uh, Yom uh, Tru'ah, or the day of the, it's actually the day of blowings, or the day of the trumpets. Now you know it, because it's usually, referred to as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, all that's the same thing. That's the Feast of Blowing, Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. It, it occurs late September, early early October. Um, so um, look, look at what's said. It's pretty brief here, but we know, we, got, we know a lot of stuff from the rest of the Bible and from rabbinic tradition. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, Seventh month is, is when is the first day of the month. You shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So, what did this mean for them, and how do we tie it to Jesus? And what we think is obviously, Feast of Trumpets is the beginning of the new year, Rosh Hashanah, the trumpet blowing, and um, in biblical times, when Israel was in the land before Rome destroyed the temple, they would even light flames, light can candles or torches throughout the land. So the lighting of the torches and the um, uh, blowing of the trumpet, uh, shofar, but that may be at this point, there is, there is a reference in numbers to a metallic trumpet. So this could be a, a long, slender metallic trumpet. Usually when the Bible says trumpets, it means shofar, that ram's horn. So this is the Feast of Blowing, ram's horns, because it not only it starts the new year, it starts those 10 days of awe that takes you through, um, uh, takes you through uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah 
and then you make it through um, Yom Kippur. Um, it takes you through those 10 days of all. So you, you, have to, you have to start in a bank. You know, they didn't have smartphones back then. And, and all of them weren't good at reading the new moons. Uh, again, it's a lunar calendar. So those who, could re- who would read the moons, when this new moon would start, that would be the beginning of the new year, the beginning of the Hebrew month, um, you blow these horns. And you're starting these important 10 days of all, which we just went through with the Jewish community. So in light of that, well, let me also say this. Even as, by the time of Jesus, just like by the time of Jesus, Pentecost was tied to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, by the time of Jesus, uh, the Festival of Trumpets, it, it was believed that on that day was the day that God created all creation. So they celebrate creation they, and they celebrate uh, creation, and they celebrate a new creation because it's during this period you, you repent of your sins, and the Day of Atonement is when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies in biblical Judaism, goes into the Holy of Holies and makes a sacrifice for your sins. So it's during these ten days of all you repent, you uh, confess your sins, you're cleansed of your sins, Yom Kippur. Um, that's why they attacked on Yom Kippur, because all the Jews were busy. You confess your sins, uh, you, you uh, get to start anew, and new creation comes about. I don't need to connect the dots too closely, I hope. When Jesus returns, that will be a beginning of a very new creation. That will be the beginning of the consummation of the kingdom of God. Remember how twice in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verse 13 and following, and in um, 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul's talking about the return of the Lord, what does he say will um, mark the return of the Lord so that we know? What will we hear? Yeah. Um, It's throughout our hymns, because it was there in Paul, that the return of Christ will be um, acknowledged with the blowing of the trumpet. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So again, it's obvious to us the connection between the Feast of Trumpets and, and the second coming of Christ. This is probably a good place to stop. Um, I may kind of say some more about the Feast of Trumpets next week, but I have to get through Yom Kippur and the Festival of Booths next week. So...